Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by. Hi, I'm Scott Hahn, and I'd like to invite you personally to join me and Breadbox Media on August 24th in New Oxford, Pennsylvania. For a day of spiritual renewal, I'll be presenting three talks, one on St. Joseph, one on the Sacrament of Matrimony, and another one on the Holy Eucharist. Learn more and register at breadboxmedia.com forward slash PA conference. I hope to see you there. Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. This is Sunny the Record Stream on breadboxmedia.com. I'm looking very forward to sharing with you today an aspect of the 13th century that is just wonderful. We're going to think about romantic love and kindliness in the 13th century. The foundation of those two things is beauty. God is love, and he gives us beauty in order that we may feel and see and sense the shape of his love. Not only in romantic love and kindliness, but in many other things. about when considering the qualities of God. Beauty should precede other things. It's in beauty we can see and feel God's love. An example of it is this chant by Thomas Aquinas, written in that century. The very beautiful Tanto Mergo Sacramentum. God is infinite. He's infinitely unknowable. And yet we want to know him. And the more we contemplate him with our rationality, the more we make the mistakes that the great theologian Hans Uns von Balthasar led us away from, saved us from. He saw two ways we might go wrong in trying to contemplate God's infinity and trying to sense God. One is to reduce the infinite mystery of God down to human size, to make the mystery of God come down to the level of our sentiments. The other way is to exaggerate the immensity of the mystery, to exaggerate the unknowability of God, as if God did not want to reveal himself to us. Von Balthasar saw there was a way out. The way out is beauty. God gave us a way out when he gave us beauty. 
the infinite mystery of God's beauty was not reduced down to our size or beyond our reach. Instead, the gift of God's beauty raises us up into the mystery of God. Beauty reaches down into our flesh, into our flesh, with a spiritual light. Plato saw this because Plato was not a Platonist that divided the flesh and the spirit. He saw them intermeshed. Plato also knew that music was in that mixture. Music was a transcendental bridge. That music, more powerfully than any other art, shaped our thoughts and consciousness, shaped our zeitgeist, the spirit of our times. So how did this illuminated beauty find expression in romantic song that shaped the nature of romantic love in the 13th century? Here's how. It was a time of troubadours. In France, they were called trouve. In the German areas, they were known as mini-singers and meister-singers. Their songs, no matter what the subject, were full of joy and play. It had a spirit of gaiety and light-hearted admiration for nature that was characteristic of the 13th century. Yet they were always refined and good-natured. Hearing them, one can sense the kindliness that was so characteristic of that time. Stop and think how our own popular music might portray our time to future generations. What a contrast. But among the subjects these songs address was romantic love, the idealized romantic love of the 13th century. The poets of South Germany and of Italy sang of a character of love full of lofty emotions, never mingled with anything of the merely sensual. Even some of their tunes that are mere trifles still sound very worth listening to to our modern ears. The German mini-singers particularly did not hesitate to emphasize the fact that sensuality had no part in Minne. By the way, Minne is their term for love. They were called mini-singers. They sang with all the natural grace and fervid rapture of the, as the Grecian poets of the old pagan times, worshipping at the shrines of fleshly goddesses. Nothing in the history of literature is better proof that ideal love can, unmixed with anything sensual, inspire lyric outbursts of supreme and enduring beauty, better than the songs of these many singers and some of the French and Italian troubadours of the spirit. This was the time of Dante, and he wrote about the troubadours. A gradual change had come over the troubadours about the beginning of the 13th century. They portrayed love as the force that inspired men to good deeds, to heroic deeds. Romantic love was no longer portrayed as being about mere sexual passion. It was rather the motive to great works, to self-surrender, to self-sacrifice, to the winning of an honorable name as a warrior, courtier, or poet. What it described we know as chivalry. The chivalrous knight would bind a lady's scarf, a lady's colors, around his spear and ride into battle with it that way. Not because he hoped to win her sexual favors. Indeed, she might often be married to his lord. No, she was idealized. He wanted to be honored by her, to do her honor. That was his greatest desire. That was the source of his passionate pursuit. This is the noble knight, often chaste, 
often having taken vows of poverty, sometimes vows of silence. Many were warrior monks, true soldiers of Christ. To our modern sensibilities, it sounds a little impossible. Knights are never depicted in movies and miniseries this way, as the way they really were. It's Christ-centered, heroic, desiring honor more than any personal greed, and a powerful influence in making and reinforcing him being that way were the songs of the troubadours and the mini singers and master singers. Because music shapes, because music enters our flesh and illumines it, or perhaps debases it. What great power there is in such a seemingly simple thing. And whatever time we spend now in recalling this image of chivalry is not wasted because this image can save us. What are men really like? What do they want? Even in this day, they want to be knights of chivalry. There's a very famous study about Dr. Emerson Egrets, very large study. And he tested many men and many women, presenting them with a list of 10 characteristics, describing how they want to be regarded by others. We only need to talk about the top two because the top two were the same in both men and women. The top two are love and respect or honor. But the interesting thing is, women valued love more than respect. They want to be respected. But if forced to make a choice, they would take love. Men place love below respect. They want to be loved, of course. But much more than that, they wanted to be honored. They wanted to be respected. Even in this age, when men are miseducated and given an image of themselves that is smaller and more base than they really are. Within themselves is a latent nobility. They are by nature chivalrous. There was an article recently by a man named John Horvat. He wrote that chivalry is the Catholic solution to toxic masculinity. He wrote that toxic masculinity is one of those trendy expressions that is intentionally left vague and emotional so that it might wreak havoc on society. Once limited to feminine studies departments, the term has broken out of its cage and now seems to be everywhere. In these hashtag MeToo times, everyone can claim to be a victim of toxic masculinity. Actually, toxic masculinity is a description of what modern men have become. It should not be a surprising development. This debased notion of masculinity is indeed toxic. The sexual revolution created, cultivated, and nurtured a man monster. A whole culture has been involved in making sure these men misbehave in the way many are now doing. The media have celebrated the destruction of the traditional notions of what a man should be. This effort has created a crazy, mixed-up creature. Now this Frankenstein's creators have turned upon him, hanging a sign around his neck with the word toxic masculinity. Scribbled in pink ink, so wrote John Horvath. Recently, a woman psychologist was counseling a couple who had divorced and their child. Her office was in a busy downtown area with a large parking lot shared by many buildings. At the end of the session, my friend left first, and he went to his car and looked back and could see 150 yards away, his ex-wife and his child 
approaching their car. There were a lot of people milling around, and he knew her car had broken down frequently. He had saved her on the roadside a number of times. He noticed the psychologist was watching them. As soon as his son and ex-wife were safely in the car and the car was moving away and down the road, he got in his car and left. He arrived early for the next week's session, and the woman psychologist said to him, Your behavior is creepy. What do you mean, he said. She said you were standing there staring at your ex-wife and John. Creepy. You should get in your car and leave. Don't stare at them. That's creepy. My friend was greatly offended by this. He said, I'm a Southern gentleman, no matter who it was, even if they weren't related to me. I would watch over them and make sure they were safely on their way. That's all there is to it. The psychologist was satisfyingly taken aback. Especially by modern psychology. Men too often are judged much more based than they are. Even the therapeutic professions seem to have forgotten, for the most part, what men are really like. To people that know the musicians of this period, probably the most famous is a man named Walter von dem Vogelweide. He claimed to have gotten his melodies from the birds. His refinement and sensitivity is very evident. You can see how much nature meant to him. In this poem about May, gentle May, from near and far you shower gifts upon us. You clothe our woods so rarely, and the meadows here. New colors are glowing out on the heath. In the field, flowers and clover are merry rivals, striving among themselves to see which can grow the fastest. A man named Hartman Von O wrote a lot of love poems. This one from a knight who was headed off to war. Glory be to her whose word sends her dear Lord to a bitter fight. Although he conquer by his sword, she has equal right to the praise. He with a sword in battle, she at home with prayer. Both win the victory and both share the glory. The Trouvet of France sang elegant songs that were a little lighter in nature than those of the German mini-singers. But they're French, so they often have a wry twist to them. The Trouvet of Bertrand de Vorne wrote a song with these words. He's insisting with his lady love that she must not listen to the rumors she may hear from other people with regard to his faithfulness. I can't hide from you how much I fear those flatterers who whisper in your ear against my faith. But, oh, I pray, don't let your heart turn away, that heart that is so true, so faithful, so sincere, so frank, and to me so precious. Oh, lady, do not turn your heart away from me. This was an age of great kindliness, of sweetness to each other. Believe it or not, there were even old age pensions. In our time, it's been a government fair with all the possibilities of abuse. We well know that it's often subject to abuse. In the 13th century, the old age pensions were ruled by the guilds. After a workman had been seven years a member, the guild assured him a livelihood for any disability, from any cause whatsoever. Not just the employee, 
but the employer also was a member of the guild and this was a real mutual organization and there was a sharing of the various risks of life. This was a system well adapted to avoid abuses. Governmental systems are often abused because people feel that if they don't abuse it, others will. But when your pension is paid by a small body of fellow workmen, the investigation is easy and the temptation to exploit doesn't have any place. Friends and neighbors know each other, stay in touch, and people are not pauperized by the system. And often the pensioner, improved enough after an injury, is able to get back to work, or at least to do something to support himself. The system is elastic enough so that he's not likely to be tempted to continue to live on others rather than on his own efforts. Charity in the 13th century was one of the best features of its fraternalism. The needy were cared for by the guilds themselves. There were practically no poorhouses. And if a person was willing to work and had already showed that he was willing to, there were definitely organizations that would help him feed his family if he was out of work. The system was local and flexible enough to take care of tramps, vagrants, even just lazy people. Vagrants, rather than giving them cash and money, they gave them tokens which enabled them to buy the necessities of life without being able to abuse charity. Of course, those people didn't have the problem of large city life in which people that want to take advantage of things can hide in the great numbers of people because there's a general anonymity. Most people suppose that things like fire insurance are new. They're not new at all. They were developed in the 13th century. And other kinds of insurance too. Good and valid insurance is indeed a form of kindliness and creates a sense of security. Some of our fire insurance companies are probably several centuries old, but some other kinds of insurance are much more modern. But practically all of these various forms of insurance were in existence during this 13th century. But they disappeared with a so-called reformation that impoverished everyone and didn't come back into existence again until very recent times. It's pretty apparent that in the 13th century, people were sort of nice. They had manners, even formal manners. The formal documenting of manners, like so much else that we mistakenly think is modern, is also found in the 13th century. There's a German book from the period that contains most of the details of polite conduct that have been accepted in later times. John Garland, a man from Oxford who'd lived in France for many years, wrote a book at that time. It was called The Book of the Polite Man, Teaching Manners for Men, especially for boys, as a supplement to those which were emitted by the most moral Cato. Uh, Cato wrote a book of manners back in the 4th century in Latin. There's some directions on how to behave yourself in talking with anybody in one of these old books. They get pretty specific. If a man demands a question of you, don't be too hasty in making your answer. Weigh well his words. Understand his case before you make an answer. Otherwise, he may judge you to have little intelligence. Suffer to hear his whole story. Then you may speak. Talk in an audible voice, not high nor low, but at a measured pace. Pronounce your words plainly, that they not be spoken in vain. Now, some of our fine manners probably disappeared in the rougher times that stand between us and the 13th century. 
They seem to be trying to reappear now. Anybody that thinks that mankind has advanced in practical wisdom and good manners during the 6,000 years of history forgets entirely the lessons of literature. Whenever we look at the written works of great geniuses, we see a knowledge of human nature as great as to be found at any other time in the world's history. The wisdom of Homer and of Solomon are example. An amazing example is found to be in what is the oldest book ever written. This is the instruction of a man named Tha-Hotep to his son. Tha was the vizier of the 5th dynasty in Egypt, about 3,650 years before Christ. There's nothing that a father of today would wish to tell his son as a result of his own experience that you won't find in this wise advice from a father nearly 6,000 years ago, long before King Solomon. If history progresses at all, it's not at an even pace. It goes forward and circles back and stops and starts as a flourishing and decay. Let's look at some other small things that relate to kindliness and getting along and being easy with each other. What about table manners? Well, this is the great 13th centuries, and table manners were very well developed. But you still had to formulate instructions for children. Like this. Thou shalt not laugh, nor speak nothing, while thy mouth be full of meat or drink. Nor sup thou not with great sounding, neither pottage nor other thing. At meat cleanse not thy teeth, nor pick with a knife, or straw, or wand, or stick. While thou holdest meat in mouth, beware to drink. That is an unhonest chair, and also physic forbids it quite. And is chew without strife to foul the board cloth with thy knife. No blow not on thy drink or meat, neither for cold, neither for heat. Nor bear with meat thy knife to mouth, whether thou be set by strong or couth. Lean not on elbow at thy meat, neither for cool nor for heat. Dip not thy thumb thy drink into. Thou art courteous if thou do. Insult seller if thou put or fish or flesh that men see it. That is a vice as men me tells. A great wonder it would be else. One of the reasons in setting the record straight that I wanted to talk about the 13th century was the fact that the Catholic Church occupied so large a place in the life of that time that most of what was accomplished must naturally be credited to the Catholic Church. Many people not interested in the old church have written very enthusiastically about the 13th century. So many want to know more about it, not because they're interested in antiques and curiosities and quaint times, but because the 13th century is at the root of what people think and do today. And now again, Thomas Aquinas' great Latin hymn, Tantum Ergo, a flourishing of order, a flourishing of beauty, a flourishing of God's love, entering the flesh of Thomas Aquinas and illumining his work with God's love. 
God's beauty. May we all live illumined by God's beauty. This is setting record straight with Chuck Kaufman on redboxpedia.com. This is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tours Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Breadbox Media Programming is brought to you by Jack Kane Ford. Find your next Ford Tough vehicle at KaneFord.com.